Hey there, I'm Jennifer Thompson, and today we have a special treat for you. I will be doing an interview for Warwick's of La Jolla. Warwick's is one of the oldest bookstores in the nation, and it is fantastic. If you have a chance to go visit, I recommend it. In fact, buy all of their books. Every book they have is good, including this one. All right, let's see. doing this and thank you to the library I am in love with libraries and this book is pretty much about that love of libraries so yes it I'm is I'm happy to be here the library takes a it's, a, it's almost a character yeah this book yeah yeah I want that was gonna be one of my questions for you is how did your love of libraries begin can you bring us back there oh, well I felt like for me my life was completely changed by the library and I went to a library in my town I couldn't get to the library but I could get to the next town's library. Mm -hmm. And so they gave me a library card, even though I didn't belong to the town. Mm. And um, Because you hung around all the time? Or? Uh, yeah, I was there all the time. <laughs> and I feel like for me, in my life, the, the whole world opened because of the library. And I think for kids, when they walk into a library, for many of them, it's the first time like they have, they have the, the, the chance for the first time to choose what they're gonna read. And that's very exciting, I think. Words are magic. Yep, that's true. I feel some magic in the room today. How about you guys? <laughs> Tell us a little bit about this book, The Invisible Hour. Yeah, well, The Invisible Hour is about a girl named Mia um, whose mother gets pregnant when she's very young and her parents are not helpful at all. She runs away and she gets involved with a cult. She's very young, she kind of doesn't know what she's doing and it's about Mia's life and it's a cult where they ban books. So um, she starts to go to the library, and just like it happened to me, her world opens up by going to the library, and she finds a particular book that really speaks to her that I think that happens to many of us, mm -hmm. especially when we're young. She finds The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, and, um, and that kind of opens her world for her. I have so many questions for that. How old were you when you first led, read The Scarlet Letter? I don't know how old I was, but I remember thinking, oh, this is going to be so boring and so dull. And then I read it and I thought, this is really exciting and it feels really fresh and new. I mean, I read it as an adult, not as a kid, but it really, um, you know, it's, it, it, you know, if you've read it or if, if you might remember, it's about Puritan society and it's about uh, his character, Hester Prynne, is pregnant, she's not married, it's a huge scandal, she won't say who the father is. And she lives very isolated from the rest of society. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think I had this kind of feeling that I was reading my own life, mm. as Mia does in the book, because um, my mother was kind of a rule breaker. We lived in a very working class um, world, and it was you know in the 50s, and she broke a lot of rules. And so she was very much an outcast mm. in our neighborhood. So I think, you know, I, you know, sometimes as a writer, you don't realize you're telling your own story until you read it and you think, oh, oh, that's true for me too. So what came first? You decided, I'm going to write a book that's sort of inspired by The Scarlet Letter. Or did that happen while you were writing? Like, tell us the impetus for this book in particular. Yeah, well, I've I'm, I'm always been interested in Nathaniel Hawthorne, and I always wanted to write about him. Mm. I think he's such an interesting character. Indeed. His life was really formed by, like, the very strong women in his life. Um, both his, he, uh, he had two sisters, but one of his sisters, and then he married this woman named Sophia Peabody, and there were two other sisters, and they were very 
Um, there were women with a lot of ambition and talent and goals in a time that they basically couldn't do anything. Right. You know, so in fact, it was a time when Hawthorne was living. You could be a tutor as a woman for Harvard students because mm. you might be more educated and learned than they are, but you couldn't go to Harvard. Wow. So um, it's just an interesting time. And the fact that he wrote about um, a woman's life and the way that he did and women's rights was always very interesting to me. But then what happened was I happened to be living in Concord briefly where he had lived with his wife and Thoreau lived there and Emerson and the Alcotts and they had a mock funeral for him. I think it was, I forget what the, it was an anniversary of his death, I don't remember which. And they had the carriage that he had, he had been taken to the cemetery in and we walked along and went to that, went to his headstone where if you ever go to this cemetery where they're all buried, people leave all kinds of treasures for mm. him and pencils and pens and papers and books. <laughs> and it's it's kind of like um, it's kind of like a shrine in some way. Sure. Um, so I think when that happened, I, I felt more that I wanted to write about him. That is so cool. What I find fascinating. Well, first of all, I have to admit, everyone, I had not read the Scarlet Letter, so I read it in advance of reading this book, uh, which was a wonderful experience, and I highly recommend it. Practical Magic had a little bit of the great-great-grandfather. So Nathaniel Hawthorne's great-great-grandfather was actually one of the most despicable men during his time period who hated yeah. witches. Yeah, he was the, one of the judges at the Salem Witch Trials. Yeah. Um, and he was the worst judge. He was the only judge who never apologized for what he did. And Nathaniel Hawthorne spent like his whole life trying to make up for what this guy had done. Mm -hmm. He went so far as he changed the spelling of his name. I think that was part of why he was writing about women in this in the way that he did because he had so much he carried so much guilt about what had been done by his family. You I, I feel like you've been researching all of your other books have led to this book. Uh, maybe in a way, yeah, it's true. It yeah. The themes I mean, your themes are so beautiful. I mean, yes, you write about magic, but really you write about the power of women. Yeah, I always feel like what I want to do, I mean, I didn't realize this until recently, but I really want to tell the stories of women who couldn't tell their own stories. And that was true of The Marriage of Opposites. I wrote about Camille Pizarro's mm -hmm. mother, who was, who was a very difficult woman who never got to tell her own story. And I just feel like, you know, that's kind of important to me and that's what I'm, I've been trying to do. And I'm also always writing about survival. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I'm a breast cancer survivor, but even before that, I feel like that was, has always been my theme. And sacrifice. You know, these very strong women who are held back by society, but they sacrifice so much for their daughters in a lot of cases. And I think there's magic in that, right? Yeah, well, I think the relationship between mothers and daughters is like the most complicated, complex, Indeed. <laughs> fraught yeah. relationship, and it's always interesting to write about. And I also feel like, you know, you can't really know your parents, especially your mother, because you didn't know her when she was young. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people are, are different people during ti different times in their lives. Indeed. We grow. I think we get better. <laughs> <laughs> So your research of magic, I'm just curious, like when did you become fascinated with the idea of magic? 
I well, for me, I think it's because of what I read mm. as a child. What I took out of the library were always magic books. Like what? So fairy tales, yeah. um, Grimm's fairy tales, those Andrew Lang fairy tales of the different color, the blue book of fairy tales, the red book of fairy tales. Um, I read. I love this writer. I don't know if you know him, Edward Eager. He wrote magic books for children. They're really wonderful, and. Um, also, my grandmother was a big storyteller, and she was Russian, and her stories sounded like fairy tales to me. So, for me, magic is always the original literature. You, I, I heard you once say that approximately 85% of the heroes, the heroines in fairy tales, are girls. Yeah, which is very unusual, yeah. and I think that's why I like them. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and... Uh, those stories meant a lot to me, as, as I think, and even with Hansel and Gretel, you know, yeah, Hansel's there, but Gretel's the smart one, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> and she's the one who saves them, so. Yeah. You know, if we look back in Puritan times, educated women, women who thought, who had brains, were considered dangerous, were considered witches, and so you've done a lot of research into the Puritan society, which comes into a lot of your books. So talk to us a little bit about the, the journey in researching Puritans and how much of that world seeps into your books. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I live in New England, so we are, we're kind of surrounded by, you know, great writers of that time. And also, I mean, that's where it all started. You know, that's where the witch trials started in Salem. Um, I think, you know, for me, it's like even now, when little girls dress up, for Halloween, you have like a choice. Like you, well, you have many choices, but two basic ones: a princess or a witch. Right. And right. I always thought a witch seemed much more interesting. Way to more me. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and I think little girls still feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's power in it, right? Yeah. I mean, I think a witch is the is the female mythic character with power, mm -hmm. and I can't really think of another one. And so I think that's very appealing, especially to little girls. And magic is, you know, there's magic in in so many things about life, right? It's not necessarily spells, although I do hear you have a lovely collection of spells that you've researched for your library. For oh, I, ha I have a magic library, yeah. Okay, tell us about your magic library. Well, there's nothing much to tell. Oh, well, it's <laughs> But it's just, you know, when I'm, when I'm doing, you know, I don't know this, you know, it, it's not like I practice magic, so I have to do research, and I want it to be as true to magic as possible. Mm -hmm. And words have magic. Your magic is in your books. Yeah, I mean, I think that is kind of, in a way, the original magic. You know, when you think of, um, and, and, and words, you know, either the oral tradition or the written tradition, when, you know, abracadabra means I create what I see, mm. and cre I create what I speak. Mm. So I think it's, I think it's it, books are magic. I mean, it's really just like black marks on a page yeah. that we then visualize and see and experience. But it transforms our world. It, it takes us to new places. Yeah. And it helps us grow and find ourselves. And we, when we see ourselves on the page, something incredible happens, right? Like a book can change your life. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting that it's so interactive, like so much. And that's what my book is about, too, is that a, a writer needs a reader. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, because yeah. without a reader, yeah. that world kind of doesn't exist. I was just going to say my favorite thing about books is you write it and you put it out into the world and it takes on a life of its own because the experiences of the reader add to the story and the way in which they interpret and what they take from it. So it keeps growing and evolving. Yeah, exactly. And I love that. I love <laughs> it so much. Yeah, I think so too. And I think part of being a writer is you want to take something 
terrible or sorrowful and turn it into something beautiful. Mm. You want to kind of recreate the world. It's that abracadabra thing that you want to make something beautiful yeah, or meaningful. I wonder how much of the political climate that we've experienced in the last you know, eight years has <coughs> driven you to write some of the books you've, you've written. Well, this book, I mean, is also about time travel, and I think one of the reasons... Oh, I, only. If I, only we could time travel. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, especially during COVID. Right, totally. Uh, you know, I think a lot of time travel books came out of the COVID period because it was just like, you know, let me out of here. And one way to get out of a situation is to open a book mm -hmm. and read and imagine something different. I heard you say in an interview that, you know, in Puritan times, like, women had no rights. In fact, is it 90% of the Puritan women were illiterate? Is that? Mm, I think, that I don't know the percentage exactly, but yeah. That's startling. Yeah. And here we are banning books, and here we are really, I mean, the freedom of the press, I, I have felt like has been in danger, you know, by calling it fake news, and I don't want to get political, obviously, but like, the, those things could happen again. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really what's interesting is that when Hawthorne was writing about the Puritans, the same thing was happening in 1850. That okay. was the time, I just did, wrote an article about this, so I didn't know this, that uh, abortion was legal in this country in colonial times up until the 1850s. Mm. And it was um, up until the time of, the, they called it the quickening, mm -hmm. when you felt the baby, mm. you could you could um, have an abortion through drugs or through herbs. And then in, in the 1850s, the American Medical Association decided that that wasn't a good thing. Mm. And they started to ban abortions. And the women, that's, that's when women started to protest. Um, so it just seems like a cycle that happens again and again that's so oh interesting. It really, it's terrifying. You think, oh, we've learned, we're moving on, right? We're advancing, and then we take three steps back. Speaking of yeah. abortion and that research, do you plan to write a book around that topic? No, I don't. But I think you know one of the things. It's not in the book, but it's in the um, it's in the advanced reader. Is I talk a little bit about my mother was a social worker um, when I was growing up, and she was a social worker with unwed mothers, and then with foster children, and then with protective services. Mm. And um, I would go with her to pick up the babies. And I have to say, if you want your daughter to never have sex, take her to pick up the babies when she's 12 years old. It was so disturbing <laughs> to pick up these babies because very often they would think that I was the mother. Oh, and you had to put them back down. Well, we, we, took, them, we took them to foster care. Oh. And we put them in laundry baskets because there were no car seats. It was mm -hmm. very traumatic. I'm, I'm just realizing now how traumatic it was to pick up these babies. And also mm -hmm. my mother, um, because of what she did, you know, she knew uh, it, abortion was illegal and she knew of safe places to go. Wow. Um, because it was very tragic time mm -hmm. for the girls that I know. Yeah. And um, she, even though she was a, kind of a radical person, I think she was a very good social worker because she was very not judgmental. And, um, you know, it was an interesting thing to be doing at, the, at 12 and 13 years old. Indeed. So yeah. it made me see the world differently. It's funny because Hawthorne talked about um, when he was about nine or ten, he had an accident, yeah. and he had to stay in bed for a long for months or something, and he felt like he was watching the whole world through the window, mm. and I felt like that was such a good description of what it is to be a writer. It's like you're you're in the world, but you're also watching the world, yeah. and you're somehow separated from it, and yet you want to write about it and understand it. And I think, you know, that that's what happened to me also, 
you yeah. know, and that's what made me want to be a writer. You know, even picking up these babies, you know, what was the story? Where is the mother? Who is the mother? What happened? How did this baby get here? So I think that kind of started me wanting to write. That whole cathartic experience of trying to make sense of the world. Yeah. And words do that for us, don't they? There is a line in the book that I want to read, and that I would like you to read if you'd like. Sure. Okay. So this is, I'll take off my glasses so I can see it. It's about banning books, and I underlined this because it's so important for us to remember. She'd heard that books weren't allowed inside the farm. This is the cult. And didn't that say just about everything? In a place where books were banned, there could be no personal freedom, no hope, and no dreams for the future. Yeah, I mean, that's so true. And I just want to say, you know, I, I think everybody has a, you know, this feeling that there are writers that really influence them. Yeah. And one of the writers who really influenced me was Ray Bradbury. Mm. And especially Fahrenheit 451, which I think is such a great, brilliant book. And maybe you remember it, but it's about a society where books are burned and books are thought of as very dangerous. And then there are people who are, books are so important to them that they memorize the book so that even if they're burned, they still exist. And that, you know, that book made a huge impression on me. I knew Ray Bradbury a little bit toward the end of his life, just an incredible person and um, I, like a deeply moral person. And he wrote very often about good and evil, which I think when you're 12 and 13, it's a very confusing um, time. And I just felt very lucky that I read his books. Absolutely. So should I, should I read the beginning of yeah, that's a great idea. Okay, I have to take my glasses off, too. Yeah, well, <laughs> it happens to us, doesn't it? Yeah. We get better with age, but some things, you know. <laughs> so this is told from the voice of Mia, who's, who's actually, um, who's, when she's a teenage girl. I began my life for the second time on a June night in the year that I turned 15. My name was still Mia Jacob, and I still was made of blood and bones, but when I stepped into the road on that night, I walked into a different future. I left the way my mother had arrived, alone and in the dark. The moon was yellow and the woods were pitch black. And if you didn't know there were mountains and fields and that this was Western Massachusetts, you would think you had come to the ends of the earth. In some ways that was true, at least for me. I could feel every breath that I took rattle inside my chest. Every heartbeat echoed. Freedom is not what you think it is. It's cold and hard and bright, and that's what it felt like to change everything, to pick up the ashes and let them blow in the wind. In the morning, I was to be punished out in the cow field in front of everyone, a cautionary tale so that one and all could see what happened to anyone who disobeyed. I was meant to beg and plead. I had, I had asked to be forgiven in the past, but I was someone else now. I was the girl who knew how to escape, the one who could become invisible, who believed that a single dream was more powerful than a thousand realities. Isn't that wonderful? That's the way it starts. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. When I read that, I felt like I was sinking into a warm blanket. <laughs> the words just wrap you in this, this feeling of magic. You know, your, your wording is what draws people to your writing, so thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that. Writing Mia, tell us about getting to know Mia and as her character developed for you. Well, you know, for me, it's, it's just, when I'm writing, the characters walk into the room. It's not like I'm working to create them. They 
walk they walk in and they are who they are and someone asked me once you know do you do you see the characters like do you envision certain actors playing them like if they're in a movie and I never do because I see them I, I, I see through them mm. I see out through them I don't see them that is fascinating I love that <laughs> when you are you a plotter or a pantser when you sit down to write, you plot it all out, or you just fly by the seat of your pants? Yeah, I plot, excuse me, I plot everything. Um, I have outlines and I plot the chapters, but then it all changes as I'm writing. So, but just to get started, I plot. Sometimes I write the end of the book, so I feel like I know where I'm going, but it doesn't always get to that ending. Who's more fun to write, the heroes or the villains? Well, all I know is that I feel like so close to my characters that I could never, for instance, write a novel in which there was, I'm telling you, from the, from the mind of a serial killer. Mm -hmm. Because I don't want to be in that mind. <laughs> I'm with <laughs> you, you know? there, yeah. That doesn't sound like fun <laughs> for me. So, um, so I don't really know. I mean, characters, I think, have, have, they have to be kind of nuanced and have both. I mean, if you have a villain and, he, and he's not human in some ways, then he's kind of a stock character, right? So mm -hmm. I, I don't really know. Mm. Who was your favorite character right in this book? You know, in this book, I, you know, I felt like all of the characters. I didn't, you know, some somebody said once <clears throat> that when you're writing, it's as if like you threw yourself on the ground and you broke into a thousand pieces and each each character is like one of those little pieces. Mm. You know, they're not me. I'm not writing autobiographical fiction really, but in order to to write a character, it has to contain something of you. I mean, totally. it has to. You have to know them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Mia's mother, Ivy, is you know in the beginning of the story, as you said, she gets pregnant out of wedlock, which is a shame, and there's shame upon their family. She takes steps to protect her child, and in so doing, her really put in, in so doing puts herself in harm's way. Talk to us about her strength versus her weakness, because I found it. Very, she was a very compelling character for that reason. Yeah, you know, she's a character that you could hate if you didn't know her. Totally. Yeah, yeah. because she makes a lot of stupid mistakes. But you know, who as a parent doesn't make stupid mistakes? Mm -hmm. I mean, hers are are larger than most, but she doesn't know it at the time. Mm -hmm. And it's funny. It's like that idea that I forget who said this that. You live your life forwards, but you only understand it backwards. Yeah. <laughs> and that is really true for her. You know, mm -hmm. she makes mistakes and she doesn't realize how they're going to affect her daughter, herself, and then it's too late. And Mia finds strength in the books she finds. Yeah, I mean, I think the library is everything for her and completely changes her life, and as it is for so many people. And it, it's just so important to be able to go to a library and take out any book that you want to and you know kind of just open the door for another world mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's an apple they, they work on an apple orchard and I'm curious about the apple look no further is that an actual apple or did you make that up I can't remember <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you that um, I wrote another book called the red garden that takes place in the same town mm. and it was one of my favorite books to write it takes place in Western Massachusetts over like 300 years in a town. And so it's different characters, but the same garden, the same town. And I felt like when I was starting this book, I needed help to kind of get into it. Mm. Um, I think because of COVID and I was, you know, it was just a difficult time. Yeah. And so I felt like if I was in that town, I would know where I was. You know, I would have like a center. Mm. And so I started 
writing this happening in that town now. And um, in, the, in one of the stories in the Red Garden, it's about um, Johnny Appleseed, yeah. who was a real character in Massachusetts, yeah. and a real character. <laughs> <laughs> um, because the, it wasn't, he went across country, you know, planting apple trees, you know that story, you may have seen him like in a Disney uh, cartoon or something. But one of the things, reasons he was planting apples is because he was very much into the hard cider. Um, <laughs> and uh, who knew that about him? What a quirky guy. And also, he had this disease, I forget the name of it, where he was hot all the time. Hmm. And so that's one of the Sounds reasons. Sounds like menopause. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it be fun if guys got that? Um, no, but he, he, I forget what the disease was, but he's hot all the time, so he didn't wear shoes and he didn't wear a coat. So when you see like drawings of him, you know, he's like shoeless and it kind of looks like a hippie. I think he was kind of the original hippie. Nice. And so I had this character who, who meets him and falls in love with him. And um, he's not really trustworthy because he's too busy with his apple trees. But this, <laughs> the town is very involved with apple trees and as is this town, you know, it continues to be. Well, I was going to ask you, he appears in the book sort of off to the side and I sort of wanted more of that history. So. He, the, Mia's family, they're great-great-greats. Yeah, they're, they're in the related. Red Garden. Yeah. yeah, oh, they are. They are. I have to read the Red Garden. Yeah, if you read the Red Garden, you see a lot of these characters. Got it. And a lot of these places are there. How fun is that? Yeah, and then the other thing that I realized after writing about the apples is, is that one of the things that in the Scarlet Letter is that, um, that the Puritans felt that women still carried the burden of Eve. Yeah, so the apple. Plays yeah, a part in the it. apple plays a part. So good. It's so good. <laughs> I love it. I want to know a little bit about your writing process. I know we only have a little bit of time left, but do you get up every morning and write at the same desk with the same computer? Thing? I don't write at a desk, but the same computer. Um, I, I try to write every day. I mean, I'm not now when I'm traveling, but I try to write every day mm -hmm. because I think, and I think most writing teachers would say this, it's, it's, easier for you if you if you continue every day it's harder if you stop and then to get back into the story I think is much harder I'm a writer and one of the hardest things is just sitting down and making myself write and a friend of mine told me okay write 12 minutes a day which I believe is actually an Anne Lamont advice piece of advice and I did I sat down every day and I would write for 12 minutes and some days I would write for 12 minutes but most of the time I'd write longer but the beauty of it is I stayed in the characters, so I never lost that magic. Yeah, I think that's very smart. Some people do it where they do a thousand words a day or something like that. I think it becomes a practice, mm -hmm. and it gets easier to do when you do that. Mm -hmm. Do you ever? Are you ever in the middle of a book and you think, "Oh, this is crap. No one's going to read this." Always. Really? <laughs> Isn't that shocking? Because yeah. we we're like, "Oh, oh she, yeah, no, of course." I think everybody does. You're fully actualized. Or is that only women that think that way? I don't know, um, but I know I do. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you keep going. I think we should open it up for questions. All right. Sounds good. So I'm going to repeat the questions. So okay, you good. Can hear them and good. we have it on them. I'll go with you. I just wondered about the research for marriage of opposites. She would like to know about your research for the marriage of opposites. The marriage of opposites, it's funny, it's about Camille Pizarro, which I never intended to write the book, but I happened to be at... Um, I was vis visiting Dartmouth, and in their museum they had a retrospective of, of Pizarro's artwork, which I wasn't that interested in. But then I read um, 
that he was grew up in St. Thomas, which I didn't know. I thought he was from Paris, and then that he was Jewish, which I didn't know. And then it also said his mother um, created the biggest scandal in St. Thomas. Then I was hooked. Mm. <laughs> so that's when I started researching. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. How long ago was your first book published? I think that I was 23. That was a really long time ago. And I had this really great experience that is, you know, when, when writers who are starting ask me, you know, what my experience is, I'm almost embarrassed to tell them. I had a great professor and um, at Stanford, and he sent my story to a friend of his in New York in a little magazine. Uh, and I was in a master's program, and the guy published it. I mean, there was like no money or anything like that involved. We didn't think writers made money then, but. Um, <laughs> and then I got a letter from a very famous editor named Ted Solitaroff, and he said, do you have a novel? And I wrote back and said, yes, I do. And I started writing super <laughs> fast. <laughs> yeah. I love it. What? My first novel was called Property Of. And it was actually uh, about a street gang. I grew up in a really bad neighborhood. It was about uh, a girl in a street gang. And um, so, uh, yeah, so I, in six months I was done. It was pretty terrible. <laughs> but he worked with me for another six months. And he didn't take the book, but he sent me to my agent. And it was published by Farrah Strauss. And, and that was how it happened. I'm so lucky. But I also feel like, you know, when somebody asks you if you have something, when somebody opens the door, you either walk through it or you don't. So I decided to walk through it. Beautiful. Yes. Hey, I love reading because it's such a personal experience. And um, so I love Tom Wolfe also. My, my question for you is, do you endeavor ever to have any of your books turned into films? And I ask that because my favorite books, when I go to see the movie, it's it's usually disappointing, <laughs> you know, the personal experience we get to have with the, with the writing. But is that a plan of yours or a hope or an endeavor? Let me repeat the question. So she's asking if you endeavor to have your books turned into movies as you're writing. Well, some of my books were turned into movies and some I was happy with and some I wasn't so happy with. And you're 100% right. It's such a different experience. Like the reader to the novel experience is so different than seeing a film where everything is kind of visualized for you. It's just such a different experience. And I was a screenwriter for about 25 years. And, um, and I think I learned a lot by being a screenwriter about how to um, not be excessive, about how to keep the story moving, things like that. Um, but I don't write for it to be a movie, but if Sandra Bullock's interested, I, I'm interested. <laughs> Where did you grow up? I grew up on Long Island. Where? 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 Hempstead. Are, are there any <laughs> other questions? Oh, yes. So, you know, ideas come from all places. When the idea comes to you, how long do you have to sit with it before you think, I want to, I want to dedicate the next year to writing this idea? Like, how do you, how do you pick? How do you choose? When an idea comes to you, how long do you have to sit with it before you realize, yeah, I'm going to write about this? Not for very long. I mean, I'm very impulsive about some things. And for instance, I wrote a book about uh, called The Dove Keepers, and it's about, it was about the women at Masada. And the way I decided to write that was 
I, my son is an archaeologist and I was in Israel so I went to Masada with him and some other family members and um, I felt, it felt like it was a very spiritual place. I felt like I could kind of hear the voices of the women mm. who had lived there. But then I saw a sign that said there had been survivors. Mm. The minute I saw that sign, I thought this is a novel. And I, I was very impulsive. If I hadn't been, then I would have never done it because I knew nothing about any of the history about, you know, the Roman army or, you know, the history of the rebels who were at Masada. And it was a huge undertaking. So for me, sometimes it's better not to think it over too carefully and just do it. I think that's true of a lot of things. Yeah, yeah me too. <laughs> just jump. Do you have a personal favorite of the books you've written and are there any current authors that you're fond of? A personal favorite of yours of the book you've written and a current author who you're fond of, who you're fond of. A, a current author? author a current author who you like to read. Oh, well, my, my favorite current author is Elizabeth Strout. Mm, yes. I don't know if you've read Olive Kittredge, and uh, she's just an amazing writer. She's, uh, it's interesting for me because she's so different than I am, and um, I think that's what I appreciate about her. Um, so I love her books, and I think they're so emotional, but they kind of sneak up on you mm. how emotional they are. Um, my books, I think my favorite is Green Angel. I wrote it for teens, but really for myself. And I wrote it after 9-11 when I, um, I didn't think believe in writer's block until I had it after 9-11. Because <laughs> I felt like, what's the point? Mm. Uh, what's the point of anything? And then I actually went back to Ray Bradbury and read Fahrenheit 451. And it helped me enormously to remember how important it was to write. And it's a book about a young woman who loses everything and writes her way back to life. Mm. Sounds a little autobiographical. Based on well, you know, it, 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 it is and it isn't, you know, yeah, it is. And just how you felt at the moment. It's how I felt. I think what, what's autobiographical for me is the emotion more than the fact, or, or, sure. you know. Sure, yeah. You've written children's books as well. Yeah. Do you prefer writing, or does it depend, depend on your mood, but do you, do you prefer writing a certain genre? No, I think it's just the way the book comes to me. I, I don't even really make that decision. It just is what it is. The characters walk in and you put them on the page. That's it. <laughs> After 20 revisions. <laughs> <laughs> How long did it take you to write The Invisible Hour? I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I've been writing about Hawthorne on and on <coughs> for years, and I had other versions of a book with him in it, so I, mm. I don't know, like off on and off for 10 years. Oh, wow. Wow. I'm glad you stuck with it. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yes, in the back. Mm -hmm. So was the title The Invisible Hour when you came up with or did your publisher change the title? The working I, title? I did have a different title. Mm -hmm. I find that either you have the <coughs> title before you write the book and I definitely had it with Practical Magic. I had that title. I didn't have a book. I just had the title and, and I thought this is a great title for a book. <laughs> I should write the book. But with The Invisible Hour I had a different title that people felt like people couldn't say. Um, I don't exactly know why. So I, I went through lots of different titles until I found this one that felt right to me because it's kind of that hour between night and day um, when anything can happen. And it's also, there's a lot of references to being invisible, mm -hmm. wanting to be invisible, wanting to be able to escape. So that felt right to me. With uh, your 
mentioning that you had, you know, your library of magic, but that you don't, you know, necessarily practice. But do you find any just useful things that you incorporate in your life anyway? You know, I mean, so much, so many of the spells or recipes or whatever are just kind of the way that nature reacts to things and using it to your benefit. Are there any things that you've learned through your library of magic that you utilize while not necessarily considering that practicing? So the question is, you have a large library of magic and you don't necessarily practice, but there are, are there things that you take from that to use in your practical life, like herbal, medicines? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very interesting that a lot of witchcraft is about um, medicine and about herbs. and. Um, I think it's also really interesting that um, when uh, during the Spanish Inquisition, when they were burning books, they would burn they burnt the the Jewish books and then they burnt the um, medical books hmm. because medicine and magic seemed were so interrelated. So I think there's a lot of truth in 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 in, in a lot of magical um, recipes, but do I use them in my real life? No, I've barely taken aspirin. So. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to circle back to practical magic. Was there anything in the creative process from the book to when you were working? Did you work with Sandra Bullock and Nicole Kidman? And if so, what morphed with all of your energy together to create the movie? So the question is, when Practical Magic was optioned for a movie, did you work directly with the author, I'm sorry, the writers, screenplay writers, and the actors to make it what it became on the screen? Yeah, no, I wasn't involved in the movie. I mean, I got to know Sandra Bullock. I went out to, to watch it being made. Um, I actually had cancer at that time, so I was mm. less involved than I might have been. But I have to say, it, it really totally got made because she wanted to do it, and she was really behind it, and she was the driving force. And, you know, I think she's great, just as nice as you think she is. She actually is that nice. Nice. And did you like that, the movie? Did, did you approve of the final? I think, you know, I think the movie and the book are very different, mm -hmm. but I think they're, you know, I love the movie. Yeah. Um, so it's just a very different being. I was afraid to watch it because I loved the book so much. I was worried I wouldn't like the movie, but I actually really enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, it's just different. Yeah. Well, that concludes today's interview with the amazing, talented, so magical. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. <laughs>